Hi, and welcome to Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We are committed to serving our community and the community abroad. We pray that the word you are about to hear will be a blessing to your life and that you allow the Holy Spirit to open your heart and receive what the Lord is speaking to you. I think that, unfortunately, the whole message of Christ, which should be the focus, the focus is, is gone in many, many lives. Uh, I've talked to people in this country, believe it or not, that didn't even know the gospel, even though they live here. People in New York City I've talked to, and they'd never heard the gospel. It's quite amazing. And so they know who Santa Claus is. They heard of Jesus, but they don't even know why Jesus came. And of course, we see in this text, sin, the devil, and Jesus are connected together in 1 John 3, 8. So we need to understand why that is to begin with. And so he says that whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then he says, for this reason, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So obviously, Jesus came to do something about the sin issue, the sin principle, because that's how he could destroy the works of the devil. When the serpent, which we believe was uh, Satan personified in a beast, in an animal, and there was a lot of symbolism in this that we don't understand. The serpent was able to get Adam and Eve to sin. You can look at that in Genesis chapter 3. And after that, there was a cataclysmic of, uh, uh, effect, negative effect, that deteriorated the human condition to the point in which the body experienced physical death. It was never meant to die. And then eventually human life expectancy went from almost a thousand years to 120 after the flood. And by the time Moses came on the scene, we read in Psalm 790 that we've been promised 70 or 80 years if we have the strength. So 80 was looked at as living a long time during the days of Moses. And that all happened because of sin, but it was not just the physical effect, the biological, uh, physiological effect, but there was an emotional effect. There was a spiritual effect. And then the environment was affected. We see the animal kingdom changed. We see um, nature changed, that there was thorns and thistles that came up out of the ground instead of just the fruit. And that's why one of the judgments on Adam is, by the sweat of your brow will you labor. And then he told Eve that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And so it seemed like the family life was negatively affected. Uh, labor was affected. The environment was affected because we see uh, the, the ground affected. And by implication, everything in nature was affected. And so... Sin opened up a door for a huge dysfunction in every aspect of life because humanity intentionally disconnected itself in fellowship from its creator. And so Jesus came to undo this cataclysmic negative impact. 
He came to restore our alignment with God the Father, which means that almost every aspect of the curse of Adam was reversed on the cross. The last enemy to be destroyed is physical death, which we haven't seen that, but everything else we've seen reversed by faith. And then we see that nature is in turmoil. And eventually, there will be a complete manifestation of a new heaven and a new earth when God totally brings all of creation back under alignment. And so we see sin, the sin principle, affects every part of us regarding humanity's dilemma being addressed by redemption. The greatest passage that explains this is Isaiah 61. Matter of fact, Jesus used Isaiah 61 as his opening salvo when he began ministering because it described why he came. It tells us in 1 John 3 that he came to destroy the works of the devil, but Isaiah 61 actually explains what happened that showed he destroyed the works of the devil. And so let's go to Isaiah 61. And we could see Jesus read this in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Sovereign Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to grant all that mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall build up the ancient ruins, and they will raise up the former desolations." Let's go back to verse 1. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, upon Jesus, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This annunciation goes along with what Jesus said in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. We see in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so, why would that be the first thing he mentioned? It's because the poor represented not just those in poverty, but they were in the worst possible human condition imaginable. If we think that we know what poverty is in this country, we don't know what Jesus was talking about because the poorest of the poor in this country have access and more options economically in technology and comfort than anybody in that day ever imagined. There was no welfare system. A widow, someone whose husband died, was left alone with nothing except what people and their family might give them. And there were people that were dying of starvation uh, in horrible, pitiful conditions, pitiful conditions. 
And so when Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news, somebody say good news, to the poor, he was saying something revolutionary. He was showing how in the kingdom of God, in his kingdom, somebody who receives the gospel at the worst condition of their life, at the bottom of the barrel, without any economic solutions or options, how that person would still be blessed. Isn't that amazing? They'll be blessed because, number one, their sins are taken away, and inside they have that joy, they have that assurance, they have been realigned with their Creator, and the peace and the experience and the life that they have now exceeds anything money could buy. And so that's one thing. But the other reason why, in a practical way, because God is very practical, is because once Jesus changes a person on the inside, he also begins working on their environment. And oftentimes, they begin to have a, a, a better life, even materially, once they put God's kingdom first. And so Jesus said he came to bring good news to the poor. It wouldn't be good news if they stayed in a terrible condition in their heart and if they remained in abject poverty, which was beyond anything we've ever seen and not fit for a human. Uh, and so he, the gospel brings good news to every aspect of our life. People we have seen when we started this church in the 1980s, uh, whether they were on drugs or whether they were on gangs or whether they were in uh, terrible poverty and it's cycles of welfare and cycles of uh, broken families. And we've seen them not only come to Christ and have their sins forgiven, but we've seen them break the cycles of poverty. We've seen them get good jobs. We've seen them have families. We've seen them raise kids. We've seen them have a total shift in their mindsets. The gospel positively affects everybody, and if it only worked for those who were in a good economic situation, that it wouldn't really be God, it really wouldn't be the kingdom, it really wouldn't be good news for all. But because even those in the worst possible conditions of humanity can be helped and aided and rescued by the gospel, it's good news for everybody. And then we see, it tells us in verse 2, He has sent me to bind up or to heal the brokenhearted. Since sin has come into the world, we've often been hurtful to each other. We see atrocities committed against our fellow humans. And we've been disloyal in our relationships, which causes people to have a broken heart. Someone who has a broken heart, and by the way, the heart in the Bible stands for the center of someone's being. Their will, their emotions, their spirit. It's, it's who the real person is. So when that is broken, oftentimes you lose the will to live. Oftentimes, uh, you don't even care what happens to yourself. And there is a huge uh, 
fissure inside of your soul that you don't think anything can ever help. And a lot of people in this world right now are brokenhearted, whether it's a relationship that went south, uh, whether it's some other loss of, of a dream or a job or a family or something, a, te a terrible accident or whatever that takes place. Brokenheartedness is very real in our society, as real as it was in those days when the Romans were treading upon the Jewish people and the Jewish people were in different factions and even fighting each other and there was no middle class who was only very rich and very poor. There were many people with broken hearts. But Jesus said, I've come to heal that broken heart. Isn't that amazing? The deepest recesses of your soul is touched by the gospel. It's not just a liturgical experience where you say, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you light a candle, you kneel, and you go home. If the gospel doesn't touch the greatest and deepest recesses of your soul, then you haven't fully surrendered, and you haven't given God a chance, because God wants to heal you spirit, soul, and body. God wants to touch the inner core of your being. God wants to revitalize, renew, restore, reinvigorate, give you a reason to live, give you hope. He wants to restore your life. He wants to restore your dreams. He wants to get you back on the right track. It's good news, not just because you're going to heaven. It's good news because even here, he's going to restore a sense of purpose and meaning. And truth has come to heal even the brokenhearted. Some people have ripped your heart out of your chest, but God can put that heart back and heal it. We have another reason why Jesus came. He said to proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, the first understanding of this really has to do with the human soul because that's the context, but you could also take it uh, that God is going to transform communities eventually and make things right even economically and politically, as you'll see in a few verses. But the first meaning is how sin has bound humanity. How the greatest prison you'll ever be is not a state incarceration or a federal penitentiary. The greatest incarceration you will ever have is in your mind. Your own limitations, your own thought patterns, your own worldview, your own ways of doing things that are self-destructive, that are stopping you from growing that are hindering you from moving forward in your marriage, in your job, in your life, and that are ruining the way you even respect yourself. You are creating your own prison when you're not obeying God. And so when he says that he came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, he was talking about lifting the blight of sin and low self-esteem and depression and wrong and false mindsets 
lifting it from your life. Isn't that good news? Tells us in Proverbs 5.22, the sins or the iniquities of the wicked ensnare them, and he is held fast by the cords of his sin. Every time you sin, there's a rope wrapped around you. And every time you continue to sin, it gets worse and worse and worse so that there are cords around you that you're in total bondage. We see people that are even in these, now at the beginning of these legalized shooting galleries, the first one in Harlem uh, in New York, and it's in different parts of, of the world where people are so bound up that the state is trying to let them shoot up in a safe environment so that if they OD, there'll be someone there. Um, and they just opened it up right here, I think in Harlem, a few days ago. And there are pros and cons with this. They're gonna shoot up anyway, might as well shoot up in the presence of doctors and medical staff. But the point is they're in such bondage that they can't seem to shake the addiction. But there's bondage in other areas. There's bondage in sexual areas. There's bondage in uh, mental ways of thinking, as we said. There's so many bondages. So Jesus came to release us from our own prison. We're all, in some way, a prisoner of wrong thoughts a prisoner of our soul, a prisoner of false mindsets, a prisoner that limits us from maximizing our potential. And we need to understand that Jesus, even after we're saved, is the answer to release us from our own prisoners, prison. And then he says, I came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Wow. The year. Now, the word year started in the, the time when Jesus died and rose. That time of God's favor began more than 2,000 years ago. When he rose from the dead, he broke the power of sin. He broke the power of Satan. He broke the power of death over every human being, potentially, if they would just believe. And so what he was saying is, I'm reversing the sinful effects that took place with the first Adam, that took place... Uh, many thousands of years ago, as we see in Genesis 3. And so because of that, you are now entering into a space of my favor. And uh, that space that he called a year was symbolic of a long period of time. As we know, uh, the Bible tells us in Psalm 90, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And so the word day or sometimes year uh, doesn't just depict a 365 calendar day or calendar year. It is depicting a time frame, an era, an epoch, a dispensation, if you will, in which God is acting in mercy 
and favor and love and giving humanity a chance to come to him and break the curse of Adam, to break the curse of sin, to break the bondage in their life, to break uh, the oppression, uh, to take them out of prison, all the things that he mentioned, to even bring a blessing to the poor, to those in abject poverty. In other words, in the worst condition of your soul, in the worst condition of your home, in the worst condition of your finances, you are still in the year of God's favor. Isn't that wonderful? We've entered into an era of favor. We are not in an era of cursing. We're not in an era of judgment. We're not in an era of condemnation. And so we need to take advantage of the era that we're in. And because of that, now we hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Because that favor is here while we're alive but it doesn't extend to the next life, as we're going to see, because he said in that same context, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but also in the day of vengeance, the day of vengeance of our God. What is the day of vengeance? Sadly, even though there's a year of favor, which is extended for over 2,000 years already, there's also going to be a time when human history will culminate in the day of judgment for those who reject his favor, insult the spirit of grace, trample on the blood of Christ, and treat it as an unholy thing. There'll be a day that the Bible calls the day of judgment. You could read this in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, Acts chapter 17, verse 31. He rose Christ from the dead because he said that there's a day when Jesus is going to judge all of humanity. And so what he was doing is giving them a whole summary of human history. He's saying that I'm inaugurating a day of favor, but it's going to end with a day of vengeance, God's vengeance. And you know, so many of us take matters into our own hands. And the Bible says, vengeance is mine, let me repay, right? So God is a God of vengeance. But it's all going to culminate in human history when there will be a day of judgment. And the gospel equally warns us of that day as it also gives us the hope of eternal life in heaven. So we can't have one without the other. You can't have heaven without hell, and you can't have hell without heaven. You can't have the resurrection without the cross, right? And so one goes with the other. You can't preach the love of God if you don't also understand the holiness and wrath of God. And when you have pulpits that only talk about the love of God, but they happen to miss talking about the judgment of God. Uh, people will not have the fear of God, and they'll neglect the things of God, because if they were God's a God of love, it doesn't matter. Well, God's also a God of vengeance, even though it takes a lot for him to be angry. And so this is a time when we have favor. This is a year of the Lord's favor. Let's walk in it. Let's take advantage of it. And then he said to comfort all who mourn. Wow. 
morning has to do with people who have been broken by the system. They have uh, given up hope over a certain thing in their life that they were hoping for. Uh, mourning is also, in context with Jewish literature, people mourn over their sins. And that's probably more like the essence of what Jesus is talking about here. But you can mourn, and people are in mourning because life happens, right? It's a tough world. Jesus said in the world, you will have tribulation. He didn't say you might. But he said, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And so one of the ways Jesus destroys the work of the devil is to comfort those who are mourning. He doesn't erase what happened to you. He doesn't erase the past. But his power is so great, he could actually come in and give you a love and a peace and a sense of security with him that is even greater than the pain that you experienced. Wow. So he didn't say, I'm going to erase what happened. He said, I'm going to comfort you even in your mourning. My God. And then he said, and to grant all those who mourn in Zion, and Zion is now representative of the church, which is the Israel of God, according to Galatians 6.18 and 17, to grant all those who mourn in Zion, in other words, after being covenant with God, through the gospel, to grant them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Wow. Ashes was something they would put on their head to repent, to show repentance. Uh, the, we, we see in the Old Testament they would put on sackcloth and ashes to show they were repenting from their sins. And so Jesus addressing a Jewish audience was saying, okay, in the gospel, I'm going to forgive your sins, and that, those ashes are gone, and now I'm going to put a beautiful headdress, and some could say that was a crown of glory, a crown in place of the ashes. And we see here how uh, the Bible actually tells us, it's, it's quite amazing, that one of the things that take place, we see this in Romans chapter 5, when the first Adam brought disobedience upon all mankind, the second Adam brought obedience that results in justification of life. But then we see in Romans 5.17 that one man came that sin might reign in the world, but the other man, Jesus, came that we may reign, and the Amplified says reign as kings in this world. He gives us a crown on our head that replaces that, that, that ash, that replaces that, that, uh, that, that unfortunate way we have experienced life and the way we feel and that pale, pasty thing that's on our head. He takes it off and he replaces it with the crown in the spirit. It tells us in 1 Peter 2.8 that you are a royal Someone say royal. royal. You are, say I am. I am, I am a royal priesthood. And so as Christians, you become priests. 
that have access to God, but you also become kings that represent God's kingdom and God's reign to people. So we go to God, and we go to God for people and for ourselves as priests, but we represent God as kings. He takes away the ashes. He replaces it with a crown. That's why it tells us in Revelation 1.5 that we become kings and priests of our God. Wow. It's powerful. All of us are not only priests and saints, but we're kings in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, I've come to give you the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The anointing of the Holy Ghost is so great. The effusion of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit, the essence of God's Spirit on our life breaks every chain breaks that morning, that excessive pain and trauma and feelings of, of hopelessness and depression and fear and anxiety. Jesus said, you shall receive power. Somebody say power. He said, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. How are you going to be his witness if you're broken by the world, if you're walking around depressed, if you're walking around in anxiety and fear? The Spirit takes a coward and makes him a courageous soldier. He took the apostles who denied Jesus and ran from him and betrayed him. And 40 days, 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, these same apostles were filled with the Holy Ghost and they stood up in the center of Jerusalem and proclaimed the resurrection. How did that happen? It's the power. It's the grace. It's the efficacy that comes from knowing God and allowing the Spirit to be outpoured upon us. So that anointing of the Spirit brings that gladness and replaces the mourning. Then he says, a garment of praise will come on you. That's how he's going to destroy the works of the devil. That's why it's so important we worship God. God gives believers a glad heart that are inclined to praise him in place of a heavy heart inclined to despair and depression. And then he says that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that they may be glorified. Oak tree, perhaps the strongest wood imaginable. One of the ways God gets glorified, he turns you from an unstable, unpredictable, unreliable person to an oak tree. He plants you as a pillar, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. He plants you in your family. He plants you in your community, plants you in your job. He plants you in business. He plants you in every aspect of your calling. And it shows people the power of the cross, the power of the gospel. This guy who was unstable, this guy who was always cheating on his wife or his girlfriend, this person was unreliable, and now look what has happened. God has made them an oak tree, planted them as trees of righteousness. This is the gospel. How many of you have had your life changed by the gospel? Let me see your hands. My God, my friends from my past 
but had never in a million years bet on me to be a Christian, never mind being a pastor. Look what the Lord has done. Somebody take a moment and praise God for the gospel. Praise God for salvation. Praise God for conversion. Praise God for transformation. That's what Christmas is all about. It's the reason for this season. It's the greatest gift given to humankind. God gets glorified when your friends are just checking you out. Okay, he's a Christian for two months. Now let's wait for him to fall. You know, when they see you become an oak tree, immovable, in spite of the storms we all go through. Hey, my God, we're still here after the last two years, right? We're still at church. We're still praising God. My God, it's the power of the gospel. It's the good news. That's why it's not called the bad news of the gospel. Then he says, the last thing he says that happens with those who receive the gospel, they shall build up the ancient ruins and they shall raise up the former devastations. There was a hint of that that took place 200 years after Isaiah prophesied this. He prophesied around 745 B.C., 770 years before Christ started his ministry. There was a precursor when Nehemiah and Ezra and others came out of exile and rebuilt the city. And so Isaiah was sort of mentioning that a little bit here. But it couldn't have been that because he was talking about the gospel that came from the Messiah that didn't come until 500 60 or 70 years after Nehemiah. And so that was just a small taste. The way God used Nehemiah and others to rebuild and restore Jerusalem was only a foretaste of what would happen when the world received the gospel. And from that point on, the church began to turn the world upside down. From that time on, the gospel not only affected individuals, but whole cities and nations. We could see church history from 300 AD on when the Roman Empire was transformed. The barbarians were converted in the next 500 years. The birth of Western civilization came out of the power of the gospel, the technology, the science, the hospitals, the understanding of marriage and family. All this came through the gospel. When you come to Christ, you become oaks, pillars in your family. Some of you, if it wasn't for you, your whole family would fall apart. You know that, right? If it wasn't for you, your business would fall apart. If it wasn't for you, the community would be in trouble. Well, what God does to get glorified is he uses these to receive the gospel, to rebuild the ruins, raise up the former desolations, 
And we see the gospel break generation after the, the, the poverty and the generational curses of many families and cities. The power of the gospel is so great that it not only changes individual sinners, but deals with systems and raises up whole communities as we saw in Sunset Park in the 1980s and 90s, where we saw this whole community transformed by the power of the gospel. And many of you are witnesses of that. How many of you want to be part of this incredible movement, this gospel movement? Isn't it amazing? How many are excited for serving Jesus? You love Jesus. Now, we're going to pray. We're going to pray for people. But first, I'm going to ask ushers to come up here with the offering buckets. We're continuing the Heart for the Home offering. We're going to all stand for a moment. And we're excited because we have a God who's more than enough. Amen. We pray that you were blessed by this word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at resurrectionchurchofny.com or give us a call at 718-436-0242 and be sure to follow us on Instagram at reschurchnyc. Take care and God bless.